Matthew chapter 4, verse 11 is where we left off, and I gave you guys homework. Uh, and the question for the homework was this. It says, the angels, in verse 11, came and ministered to Jesus. The question was, how? How did the angels minister to Jesus? Now, again, I'm not going to have you give your answers just yet. There's a time coming up in just a little bit where I'm going to ask you for what you found in your study to find out how the angels ministered to Jesus but in order to better understand this question, it's going to help us to do a brief study of ways in which angels have been involved in people's lives in the scriptures. If you remember, as I told you, I gave you a little, a little insight. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who are going to inherit salvation, and that's us. Now, keep that in mind. That's very, very important for later on in our study. Angels are ministers of God sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And that's going to be important later on. Go to Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, we see a psalm that praises the angels, but it also gives us some more information about the angels. Verses 20 and 21. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, Obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Again, we see here that the angels are ministers, they're servants of God, they do his will, they obey the voice of God, and just like Hebrews 1.14, they're sent to serve and to, and to minister. So the fact that angels came and ministered to Jesus is not a surprise. So we'll get to in a little bit as to possibly how and what that meant Again, I'm going to give you some references. I'm not going to have you turn to a lot of these. One is Genesis 19. If you want to go look later on at Genesis 19, you'll see that in the story of Lot and his family there with Sodom and Gomorrah, angels protected Lot and his family. They also struck the townspeople with blindness and destroyed the city. So they're quite powerful and they're able, they're actually physical beings. That these men came in, their angels came to visit Lot. Of course, the townspeople came wanting to come and, and have sex with these men because of the wickedness of that city. And Lot goes outside. If you read in Genesis 19, he goes outside the house and tries to tell the people, look, you know, just, just go away, go away. He even offers his daughters, which for years bothered me until I realized he knew they weren't interested in his daughters. He was actually making a judgment about them. Here are some girls, he said, that have never been with a man. Do what you want with them. And their reaction is, how dare you judge us? They knew what he was saying. You go back and look at Genesis 19. They say, how dare you judge us? Who made you a judge over us? See, for years, I thought he was actually offering his daughters. He never did offer his daughters. He was just sarcastically saying, here's some women, which is what God designed. But the crowd, the Bible said, started pressing on him to the point that they were squishing him against the doors. They were trying to get into the house. And the Bible says the angels opened the door crack, grabbed Lot, pulled him in. And then they struck everybody with blindness. And the people are outside groping around where they couldn't find the door. And then Lot was taken and his family, his daughters, out of the city. And then the, the angels destroyed the city. In Genesis chapter 28, you'll see Jacob uh, getting a vision of God and he sees angels ascending and descending a ladder that went between heaven and earth. And we see there that the angels have a ministry, if you will, between heaven and earth, back and forth. Interesting, we'll see a little bit more about this later on tonight. That ladder actually was a picture of Jesus because Jesus himself tells Nathaniel in John chapter 1, soon you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
And so we see angels minister between heaven and earth. In Daniel chapter 6, you'd see, if you look at the story of Daniel in the lion's den, when the king comes to check on him the next morning, he says, an angel shut the mouth of the lions. God used an angel to shut the mouth of the lions. In Daniel chapter 10, we see another situation in which an angel brought God's word to Daniel, but he had to struggle against Satan in doing it. That's the story where Daniel prays, and then the angel was sent right away with the response from God. And when he gets there, he said, I had to fight 21 days against the prince of Persia. There was a spiritual battle that happened in the spiritual realm where the angel had to work three weeks before he could get to Daniel. But the angel came and brought the message from God. Now you say, how does an angel bring a message from God? How does an angel talk to a human? Well, go to Hebrews chapter 13. Look at verse 2. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the, set, the scripture says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In other words, sometimes this stranger might actually be an angel sent from God to minister. We could probably, if we wanted to, take the rest of the night telling stories in our lives about times that as we look back, we'd say, you know what? That was an angel. At the time, I didn't fully recognize it. But then as I look back, I can see God sent an angel at that time. I could tell you stories upon stories in my life. I'm sure you could do the same. But the Bible actually says that angels can appear human. They can eat. They can talk. They, you can touch them. God uses angels a lot in the lives of, of his children. Uh, so keep that in mind. In Revelation 14, we see that there's an angel that's going to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world at once. Again, like you've heard me say before, when Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come, we've unfortunately heard preachers say as soon as we get the gospel to the whole world, then the end will come. And that's not what the Bible teaches because the Bible teaches that the gospel's already been preached to the whole world. Romans 1 says that everyone is without excuse because of creation. Romans 2 says that everyone's without excuse because he's wrote, written his law in their hearts even if they never heard the law of God. Their consciences convict them. First uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul says this gospel which has been preached in all creation. Romans chapter 10, right after he says how can they hear unless someone is sent and how and someone preaches to him. He then goes on and says, did they not hear? Verse 18, of course they did. His word has gone out to all the earth. When Jesus says in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. He was referencing Revelation chapter 4, verse 14, verses 6 and 7, where the Bible says at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be an angel that hovers in midair and preaches the gospel one last time to the whole world all at the same time. One last chance for people to respond, and then the end comes and Jesus returns. Again, God uses angels a whole lot, more than we realize. But there are two examples tonight that I want to show you from Scripture that I think answer our question. Before I give you what I like to jokingly call the right answer, or my interpretation or speculation of the answer for the homework, I'm going to show you my homework. Uh, I want to hear what some of you have come up with. Your homework, what, what do you, go ahead, Jim. What do you, how do they minister to him? Right. He fell asleep and he ministered to him there. Luke 22:43 Very good. Go, go, go there. Hang on one second. Go where Jim's talking. That's one of them. Go there right now. Go to Luke chapter 22, verses 39 and 43. 
Actually, 39 through 43. Good for you, Jim. That's one of the passages I was going to take you to. Luke 22, verses 39 through 43. And he, this is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. But we have to go a little further now. We just can't say, oh, then the angel strengthened him. Okay, but how? How did the angel strengthen him? Did the angel just come and give him a superpower hug and say, mm, I'm going to give you a supercharge? No, Jesus doesn't need power from an angel. How did the angels strengthen him? Does anybody know how the angels strengthened him at that time? Because let's be honest, Jesus is man, but he's also God. He doesn't need an angel to supercharge him, to give him strength. How did the angels strengthen him? By the way, if you're not sure, that's okay. The answer's always in the scripture. We're getting to that in just a little bit. In this situation, no. What we're looking at in Luke 22, no. Go ahead. Worshiping him, I think, is a part of it. I think it's a big part of it. But there's more to it than that. Go with me to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 15 through 18. This is when David's already been anointed king, but he's not become king yet. Saul's trying to kill him. It says in verse 15, David saw that Saul had come out to, to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Jonathan goes and finds David, and the Bible says he strengthened him in the Lord. How did Jonathan strengthen David in the Lord? We see it right here. What did he do? He encouraged him with what? With whose word? God's word. That's important, folks. He came and he reminded him of what God had already said. God anointed you to be the next king of Israel. That means you're going to be the next king of Israel. So I know it doesn't look good right now. I know you're weary right now. I know you're tired right now. I know it looks like my, my, my dad's got all this army and he's going to eventually find you and kill you. Don't listen to the enemy's lies. Remember what God has said. Go with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The scriptures here says that what was written in former days was written for our encouragement. You want to strengthen somebody? You want to encourage somebody? You don't come alongside and put your arm around them and say, there, there, you're going to be okay. 
You remind them of what God has said. You point them to his word. That will give them strength. Actually, in the old King James, you would find the word comfort. And we see comfort and we think of the word comforter like a big soft blanket. But actually, the old English word comfort actually meant to strengthen and courage. You would find some of the writings. The man comforted himself with his sword is what it said. Well, he didn't lay down with the sword because it was soft. He was encouraged and strengthened with his sword. How we encourage or comfort one another is we remind them of what God has said. So one of the things I think we see from Scripture that the angels did in ministering to Jesus, and I think it's tied to worshiping him, is that they came and reminded him of what God has said, who he was, what God was doing. And as these guys that came from his old place, if you will, showed up and said, hey, guy, we know who you are. You know who you are. You're going to be all right. You keep doing what the Father said. He's made a promise. He's going to fulfill it. Everything's going to happen according to the Father's plan. I believe they encouraged him by giving him reminder of the Word of God. Now, you touched on the second one. Does anybody else? He said you thought that they brought him food. Now, again, like I told you, I got no problem with you saying, well, I think, but you got to have Scripture to back it up. Is there scriptural backing in to show us that angels would bring Jesus food? Because like I told you, I got no problem with speculation as long as the speculation is brooded and based in scripture. So some people say, well, I think he brought him food. Well, okay, but we don't want to know what you think. All right, very good. You did your homework. Way to go. That's okay. That's all right. I, I did some of my best homework while they were taking attendance when I was in school. Because half the time I would re never remember the homework. And then they're all, everybody shows up with their pages of homework. And I'm sitting there going, oh, no. And I'm praying, take attendance slow this morning. And I'm scrambling. I, I got no problem with you doing it now. Is that where you were going as well? Guys, go with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at verses 1 through 8. I love it. You guys don't know how much of an encouragement it is to me. To have you come and say, we've been diving into the word. And this is what we found. Listen to me. My job, scripturally, is to not have you become addicted to Jim Johnson. My job is to teach you how to feed on the word, to encourage you, to show you what it says. Where you get to the point where you say, Wayne, there's more here. I want to find it. And then you will grow up into him who is the head. There are a lot of preachers out there that want you to follow them and be their groupies. I don't want you to follow me. I want you to Grow into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And all I can do is to show you what his word says. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, look at verses 1 through 8. And I'd read it if I was in 1 Kings instead of 2 Kings. There we go. Try one more time. 1 Kings 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. This is after the Mount Carmel uh, contest, if you will. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. 
And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So is it possible that angels came and brought Jesus food? Sure is. He'd been fasting 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. And the angels came, I believe, because they did this with Elijah. I believe part of what they did was encourage him and strengthen him in the word. And at the same time, also, they brought him some food. Go ahead. You're raising your hand. That was angel food cake. I was going there and people say, what kind of cake was that? It was angel food cake. But uh, actually, here's the deal. Scripturally, we see that angels did bring food. I don't have any problem with thinking that Jesus had the angels bring him some food at that time as well. He was also man. He needed food. He needed food. So keep this in mind. There's also some other one other part to this. If you go back to Matthew chapter four, verse 11 and look at the word minister, if you were to do a study of the Greek, you'll find that that word minister has its root in the word deacon. And actually, the form of the word is tied to serving food. It's tied to serving food. And you'll find that when the word minister, you have to remember that the Hebrew was translated into Greek, the Hebrew Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. They translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, and the same Greek word is used in the Old Testament and the New to talk about bringing food. So there's a stronger chance even because of the word that God chose that they brought him food. All right? Anybody else have anything else you want to add before we move on? Proud of you. You did a good job. Go ahead. Well, it definitely in the sense of if you remind them of the word of God, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, if I don't know the things are going to get better, I can't come up and say things are going to get better. But if I can tell you what God's promised, that can encourage. You see what I'm saying? So, yes, lifting someone's spirit, definitely. But it has to be tied to what God has said. Go ahead. Yep. Well, he, well, he's been empowered by the Holy Spirit or the Father or himself, whichever way you want to do it, because he was God at the same time. That's but, the reason I dropped the angel. Right. Yep. I'm not saying that they didn't feed him, but I... Right. Yep. Well, they came and encouraged him yeah. in the Word, most likely, and, and what God has said and what God's plan was. I mean, think about it. If you go back and take a look at when Jesus is transfigured in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, and you look at all the gospel accounts of that, actually the Bible says that Moses and Elijah show up, and they're talking with Jesus about what must soon take place in Jerusalem. Again, we see even Moses and Elijah coming and encouraging Jesus and reminding him of what's going to take place Folks, I don't think you realize this whole doctrine that's out there, unfortunately, of soul sleep, that when people die, they go into soul sleep until the final resurrection. It doesn't match up with Scripture. You ever notice in Luke 16 that Jesus tells the story of the Lazarus and the rich man? It's not a parable because they got names. And the rich man is talking to Abraham. And Abraham is talking like he knows a whole lot of stuff. Abraham sure sounds like God, doesn't he? When he says, hey, there's a chasm fixed between here and there and you can't pass back and forth. Well, then send him to warn my brothers. Because if someone comes back from the dead, actually, Abraham, first of all, says they have Moses and the prophets. Let them warn them. 
Oh, no, no. If someone comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. And Abraham says, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. He seems to know a whole lot of stuff. When Saul consults the witch at Endor and brings up Samuel, Samuel shows up and he tells them what's going to happen. You're going to be dead and your sons are going to be dead with you at the same time. How does he know this stuff? He wasn't sleeping. It also appears that when people go to the other side, they seem to know a lot. There's a lot of insight. And Moses and Elijah come back and encourage Jesus in the last week of his life to finish the course. Isn't that cool? Jesus said, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Because a friend, a servant doesn't know his master's business. But then after he rises from the dead, he takes it even a step further and he says, go tell my brothers. I don't think we really fully understand the depth of an intimate relationship that God has designed for us. That's available to us now. We're his family now. And I want you to get to know Jesus, folks. Get to know Jesus. Not about Jesus. Jesus, go ahead. Could, could Lazarus and the rich man be justified in saying that in heaven we will remember the book of memory? Yes and no. Let me explain. I believe when we first get to heaven, uh, we will remember. But there comes a point when the, when the millennial kingdom is over. Isaiah chapter 65, I think it's verse 17, says that there's going to be a new heaven and the new earth and the old things are gone and former things are not remembered. The old things passed away and former things are not remembered. It's also an encouragement for some people that say, well, how could heaven be heaven if I know my loved ones aren't there? There comes a point when all that's forgotten and we go from there on. You can go double check it. It's Isaiah 65. I think it's around verse 17. All right, well, let's get to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 tonight. We won't be able to cover all these verses, but hopefully we'll unpack quite a, few, quite a bit of it. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, it says, Now he, when he, this is Jesus, heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, before we go any further, I have to remind you of something I said in our introduction, and I'm going to be reminding you of it all the way through our study of Matthew. Matthew is not chronological. If you try to read this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened in the order that it's written, it's going to mess you up. Because it reads like Jesus now heads to Capernaum and heads to Galilee, correct? But as I'm about to show you, what Matthew is referring to in here, here in chapter uh, 4, verses 12 through 17, is not Jesus' first trip into Galilee, but most likely his second or third. And there are some clues here in it. Actually, if you look also, let me say this real quick. Jump to verse 18. It says Jesus calls his first disciples. I'm going to show you that by the time Jesus goes to Galilee, in the first time, he's already got disciples. But Matthew reads like he picks his disciples after he goes to Galilee. It's not how it works. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that's the case. But there's some clues here in the Word that show us that this isn't the first time that he goes to Galilee. 
Uh, in verse 12, it says, when he had heard that John had been arrested. When Jesus hears that John had been arrested is when he withdraws into Galilee. And it also says, in leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. When, what Matthew's referring to here is not the first time that Jesus goes to Capernaum or the first time Jesus goes to Galilee. This is actually later in Jesus' ministry when he goes to move there and live there. Remember, Jesus was from the town of Nazareth, and most likely that was his home base. As you're going to see tonight, there comes a point where the town of Nazareth doesn't want him in Nazareth anymore, and they try to kill him. Around that same time, he hears that John the Baptist has been put in prison. And as you're going to see a little bit later tonight, around that same time, he also realizes that the Pharisees are upset about the fact that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And with all that going on, Jesus realizes it's time to move his headquarters, if you will, to Galilee. And yes, Jesus spent time in Jerusalem. But if you remember from our study earlier, Jesus would go to Jerusalem at the time of the feasts. But he didn't stay in Jerusalem. He would go back to Galilee all the time. His home base was up in that area, Capernaum, Bethsaida, all that. Now, at the end of his life, at the end of his life, at the last week of his life, he spends that week in Bethany with Mary and Martha and them all. And he would stay at their house off and on as he would go to Jerusalem for the feasts. But Jesus, during the three years of his ministry, spent most of his time in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. He didn't spend most of his time in Jerusalem. And so that's going to be important for us. What Matthew's referring to here is when Jesus moves his home base to Galilee. Now, I'm going to take a second here to kind of um, deal with that. But I want to talk about the angel thing one more time, though, because there's something I need to clarify before we move any further. We've just talked about how angels are ministering servants sent to serve those who will inherit salvation and how God uses angels powerfully in, in our lives. And they're extremely helpful. But I'm going to say to you tonight, don't you ever dare pray to an angel. Don't you ever dare seek an angel to help you. Remember, angels are ministering servants sent to serve. You always request your request. You make them known to God. I'm not going to have you turn to these, but I want you to write these down. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, John's so overwhelmed by what the angel has just shown him there in Revelation. He falls down at the angel's feet, and the angel tells him, get up. Don't do that. You must not worship me. I'm a fellow servant just like you. Worship God. In chapter 22, he's overwhelmed again when he sees the new heaven and the new earth. He again falls down at the angel's feet to worship, and again the angel gets him up and says, no, don't worship angels. Oh, Romans Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 said that part of the reason why God is going to be showing his wrath on mankind is because they worship the created thing instead of the creator. You and I know we've got lots of people that have little hanging angels here. And, and they. And I remember this comedian years ago that used to have this song that said, I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. I ain't scared of nothing big and hairy as long as I got that plastic Mary sitting on the dashboard of my car. And actually, there are people out there that actually have angels and they pray to angels. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm not going to say it's wrong. Don't hear me that way at all. I'm just saying, listen to Colossians chapter 2. Verses 18 and 19. It says, let no one disqualify you, 
insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. There are going to be those who are going to tell you to put your faith in, pray to, put your trust in something that's not God. I don't have a problem if you have a little angel thing, but if you have it because you pray to angels, that's not good. You know, I just want you to understand the Bible's really clear that we're supposed to be looking to Jesus for everything. They're angels that are, the angels are sent to serve. Remember Psalm 103? They obey God's word. You can call to an angel all you want, he ain't coming. Oh, the Bible's really clear. They're sent, and not only do we see that, Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, turns when Peter's swinging his sword and he says, don't you think, don't you realize that I could ask my father and he could send a legion of angels, 12 legions of angels? Think about that for a second. Jesus even said, I wouldn't even call him. He limited himself. But I could ask the father and he could choose to send him. God uses angels. And like we said, Daniel said, God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lion. Don't pray to him. Don't pray to him. All right. Now, here in Matthew chapter four, as like I said, we see that Jesus is now moving his headquarters. This is he jumped ahead in the timeline a little bit. He's he moving he's moving his headquarters to Galilee, and he's going to spend most of his time of his ministry in Galilee. But I want you to see from the other gospel accounts, this isn't Jesus's first trip to Galilee. Go to Luke chapter four. Like I say, if you were just reading through the book of Matthew, you'd think this is the first, Jesus leaves the wilderness and goes into Galilee. But actually, Matthew's talking about a second or third time to Galilee. In Luke chapter 4, look at verses 14 and 15. In Luke chapter 4, verse 15, it says, uh, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So, okay, hang on for a second. Wrong verse. Let me start. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Thank you. I, 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 my eyes are getting as bad as Jim Hicks's now here. So Luke 4, thank you, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by God. We're going to get to the verse 16 in just a second. But look closely. Here we see in Luke's account the temptation of Jesus. We see in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from there until an opportune time. And then the Scripture tells us something else here now. Luke's account says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So now Luke's showing us that when Matthew's talking about him going to Galilee, it wasn't the first time. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So Luke's even showing us that he's jumped ahead in the timeline. But keep reading in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, and they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So here we see, when he's in his hometown of Nazareth in this account, the hometown people say, do, do hear what we heard you did in Capernaum. So Jesus has already been to Capernaum when the town people chase him out of Nazareth and don't want him in Nazareth anymore. So when Matthew says that he went, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, it sure reads like he goes straight into Galilee the first time, and this is what it's talking about. No, you're going to see in a second. He does, after the temptation of the wilderness, go into Galilee. But what Matthew's talking about is not the first time he does that. Actually, you're going to see, and I'm going to show you this, because John's gospel is chronological, and that's going to be helpful for us. John's gospel actually uses terms like, and then next day, then three days later, and then the next day. John's gospel gives us a chronological account for the most part, and John's going to show us a little bit more. Did you just start to raise your hand over here? She didn't? Okay. thought I saw you raise your hand for a minute there. All right. Go to John chapter 1. Verses 35 through 46. What I'm about to read to you is happening in Jerusalem still. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus in turn. And saw, he saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He says he's decided to go. He hasn't gone yet. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you'll see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So when Jesus is starting to gather these first disciples, where is he? He's where? No. Remember, it says he's decided to go to Galilee. This is all happening in Jerusalem. Where John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist's ministry was in Jerusalem, Judea, and that area, the wilderness of Judea. John the Baptist's ministry was there in Jerusalem area in Judea. Jesus is in this area as you're about to see, what? No, he's in, he's in the area of Jerusalem. These guys are from Bethsaida. Why are Philip and Andrew, who are from Bethsaida, why are they in Jerusalem? Remember? Jewish men, all of a certain age, we talked about this earlier in our study, every time there was a feast, they had to be in Jerusalem for the feast. But now Jesus heads into Galilee. And in chapter 2, what happens? He goes to the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So at this point, Jesus already has some disciples on his first trip to Galilee. He's not moved his headquarters here yet. He's just gone to visit. And as you know, what happens is, you see verse 12, after he does the, the turning the water into wine, verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum and it, it, with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And verse 13, the pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. By the way, when it says it went up to Jerusalem, on a map, he's heading south. We would think he was heading down to Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem was elevated, they went up to Jerusalem, even though they were, they were heading south. All right. So they go up to Jerusalem. They go to the temple. And this is when Jesus cleans out the temple and wipes the temple out. By the way, this is the first time he does it. He does it at the beginning of his ministry, and he does it again at the end of the ministry. And John shows us that. There's actually two wiping out, cleaning out of the temples in Jesus' ministry. But then we see at the end of this time, he's, he goes to, in John 3, he meets with Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee in the area of Jerusalem, and he meets with Nicodemus. At the end of his time meeting with Nicodemus, you see John the Baptist is confronted about the fact that Jesus is, is baptizing more disciples than he is. And John the Baptist goes on and says, he must increase, I must decrease. Do you understand? All this is going on. Go to chapter 4. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And then on that way, he stops with the woman at the well. So when Matthew shows us in chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, that Jesus went to Galilee, we now see that it's not the first time. When he goes to Galilee, in Matthew's account, it's actually the second time, possibly the third, but most likely the second time that he goes into Galilee. And what happens as he does this, we find out from all the accounts as you put them together, he's already got some disciples with him. He's already been to Cana. He's, the miracle of that has already spread. The word of that is spread. He goes into his hometown. They say, do what you did, what we heard you did in Capernaum, do it here. And he says a few things they don't like because he says, hey, God likes the Gentiles just as much as you. And they tried to kill him. And so now we see from all the accounts, he had to leave Nazareth. He's heard that the Pharisees are upset that he's baptizing more than, than John the Baptist. And actually it wasn't him, but it was his disciples. And he's also at this time now 
the disciple, he finds out that John's been put in prison and Jesus heads to Galilee and he lives in Galilee. Well, where did he live in Galilee? Most likely at Peter's house for a little while. Most likely at whoever's house who held him. But he spent most of his time in Galilee. That's actually why you'll see the disciples are actually a little surprised when he said back to Jerusalem the last time. Because the last time he was prior to that, that he was in Jerusalem, they tried to kill him. Now he says, we have to go back to Jerusalem. And they're like, Jesus, don't you remember last time you went to Jerusalem, they tried to kill you? He didn't spend most of his time in Jerusalem, folks. He actually spent most of his time in Galilee, up around the Sea of Galilee. Now, I share this with you for a reason. Go back to Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> now, when Jesus had heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, verse 12, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Him actually having his headquarters in Galilee wasn't just because the Jews were trying to kill him. It wasn't just because he got chased out of his hometown in Nazareth. It was also because the prophecy said he was going to spend most of his time in Galilee. Listen, this is what the prophecy says. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Does anybody know where that prophecy is, is, is in Isaiah? Go ahead. Go ahead and turn there. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and 2. Because there's something in Isaiah's prophecy that will be very helpful for us here. And by the way, as we bring this study to a close tonight, I want you to be ready because God has something very serious he wants to talk to all of us about tonight. In Isaiah chapter 9, look at verses 1 and 2. The prophecy says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. By the way, you're saying, why do they keep saying land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali? If you go back and look at a map of the 12 tribes of Israel and where they were given land, Zebulun and Naphtali are sons of Jacob. They're some of the tribes of Israel. And Zebulun and Naphtali, their area was up around the Sea of Galilee in what we know now as Galilee. And so, but in the, it says in, in former times, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or the Gentiles. And then it says the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. If you want to double check me, you can. But if you go back and study the history of that area, remember the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was 10 tribes and Zebulun and Naphtali were a part of those 10 tribes. The southern kingdom was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and that was called the Judah, tribe of Judah. Did the northern kingdom have good kings or bad kings? They had a lot of bad kings. Every now and then, Judah would have a good king, but for the most part, they were all wicked. But Israel, the northern kingdom, had horrible kings. If you were to go look at um, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, I think we can do it. We'll go, we'll go quickly. Go to 2 Chronicles 16 and look at verses 1 through 4. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 1, 
It says, in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, by the way, Asa is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Basha, the king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, went up against Judah and built Ramah. In other words, the northern kingdom of Israel goes to fight against the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel's fighting against themselves. The northern king goes against the southern kingdom. That he might permit no one to go in or out, come out and against, or to King Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a covenant between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending to you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad, this is the king of Syria, listened to King Asa, and he sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Mam, and all the store cities of where? Naphtali. Remember, Isaiah said that in the past times, Naphtali and Zebulun, the way of the sea by Galilee, they've been in gloom. Go to 2 Kings chapter 15 real quick. Go to 2 Kings 15. Later on in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom, you see some more. Look at just one verse, verse 29. In the days of Pekah, the king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abel-Mekah, Genoa, Kedosh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. It wasn't a good thing to live in Galilee during that time. Because of their wicked leadership and disobedience to God, God showed contempt toward them and he allowed Assyria to keep taking them captive and then they'd rebuild a little and they'd take them captive and ultimately the northern kingdom ceased to exist. But what did the prophecy say? It said in the former times they experienced gloom, but in the latter times they're going to be blessed because on them a light is going to dawn. By the way, it wasn't just a light. It was the light that came. And Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, came and lived in that area. Um, now, here's where we need to go in the time we have left. The Bible says with great light, though, comes great responsibility. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Look at verses 20 through 24. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That's where Philip and Andrew are from. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, that's Philistine country, by the way, they would have repented long ago in Sychoth and Ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, remember, remember Jesus went and lived in Capernaum? You, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I want you to hear this, folks. The Bible's very clear that we will be judged according to how much light we've received. When God judges the world and judges the nations, remember, as we've already talked about earlier tonight, the whole world's already heard. 
Now, are we to still send missionaries? Yes, because there's people being born every day and more people keep needing to hear all over the globe. We need to keep sending missionaries. We keep, need to get the gospel in people's languages. But don't think for a second that the gospel hasn't made it to the whole world. They have. But some have received more than others, have they not? What does that say about the United States? Of any nation in the history of the world, I don't know if there's been any nation that has had more light than the United States. We were founded because of the Bible. The people that came over here came over to be able to worship God freely. And they brought their Bibles and they built their seminaries and they built their colleges for the purposes of studying the scripture and training people in the word of God. And over the years, even though we've had all this light, do you realize that there are parts of the globe that still don't have God's word in their language but, or written in their language? But you probably got five or six translations on your shelf. And we fight with each other over which translation is the right one. We've been given so much light. And where have we gone as a nation? To the point that we're saying that there is no God. We don't want God. And you want evidence that the judgment of God not only is coming, but has begun? Romans chapter 1 says that God will give people over to their shameful lusts. Men with men, women with women. And the fact that our country has allowed not only homosexual marriage, but the Supreme Court's now saying it's okay is evidence that God has already given us over to our shameful lust. A judgment's coming on this nation, and you've heard me say before, as we study the last days, we're not mentioned. Folks, but we can sit here and talk about America. But what about us? I want you to listen clearly to what I'm saying tonight. We're proud in America of how many Bible studies we go to or how many discipleship courses we've had because we, we actually have our diplomas and our certificates of all the courses we've taken and, and we have Sunday school pins and how many years we've had perfect attendance. We used to keep track of all that kind of stuff. And, and people talk about how I've been going to church since the cradle roll. Does anybody remember the cradle roll? I'm on the cradle roll. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Go to Luke chapter 12. Look at verses 47 and 48. Luke chapter 12, verse 47 says, And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. When the Bible says to whom much is given, much will be required, it's not talking about money. Per se. It's talking about how much light God's given us. Now, listen closely. The Bible actually says when it comes to all of our lives, God doesn't expect the same out of all of us. In the parable of the talents, he gave one five talents, another two, another one, each according to their ability. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says, let not you think, Do not let, uh, think of yourself more highly than you ought, but each with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you've been given. In other words, God's not expecting us all to produce the same amount. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, We shouldn't all seek to be teachers, because those of us who teach will be held in stricter accountability 
Do you realize that because God has called me to do what I, he's called me to do, that I'm going to be held in higher accountability than many people because he's given me more light? I mean, he has to give me light in order for me to be able to teach and to preach his word. But with that will come responsibility. When you stand before God, praise the Lord. If you're in Christ, you're not going to be judged whether or not you get into heaven. That's already been taken care of. But there is a judgment coming for us Christians. It's called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ, where we will be judged according to what we've done since salvation. That's why 1 Corinthians 3 says you can't lay any of their foundation which has already been laid, which is Jesus. But each one needs to be careful how they build on that foundation. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. Each one's work will be tested by fire and it will show whether or not what you've done will be rewarded for or you'll suffer loss. And when you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, you can't say to him, I went to Bible study every Wednesday night. He's going to say, that's great. But what did you do with what I showed you in Bible study? You understand what I'm saying? It's the things that God's showing us. James chapter 4, verse 17 says, To him who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So it's not for me to determine what you ought to be doing. This is where the preacher's sin. This is where the preacher takes this a step too far. And the preacher says, that means you ought to be out there doing... No, no, no. Whose job is it to show you whether you're a five or a two or a one, or whether your gift is this, that, or the other, that's the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead you and guide you. But let me set you free tonight. Stop worrying about what everybody else in the church says you ought to be doing, and you go find out what it is that God's called you to do and do it. If your gift is administration, find where God wants you to use that gift. If your gift is mercy, go show mercy to people. If your gift is serving, go serve people. If your gift is teaching, find out who God wants you to teach. Because just because God's gifted you to teach doesn't mean you're supposed to teach everybody. My wife teaches junior high girls. She's wired to teach junior high girls. That is probably, of all the groups in the world, the last group I'd ever want to teach. I'm capable of teaching people the basics of the scriptures. Who is God? Who is Jesus? The 101s, if you will. It would kill me. I've been wired by God to take Christians who know the word deeper into their walk with Jesus. And I'm to use the gifts that he's given me where he wants me to. And I want you to do the same. If you're sitting here tonight saying, well, I go to Bible study, and I've been to Sunday school, and I go to church more than anybody else, I'm going to say this as nicely as I can, big whoop. Because what have you done with it? What has God shown you in his word? If you know this stuff, Jim, we've heard this before. Okay, are you doing it? Because when you say we've heard this before, you've just condemned yourself if you're not doing it. Because the servant who knew what his master wanted him to do and didn't do it will be beaten with severe beating. Folks, it's not for me to determine how you act this out. But I pray that you just wouldn't be satisfied that I went to Bible study. Are you doing what God's gifted you to do? Go ahead. Of course. Well, they're both. They're both the same. Yeah. But at the same time, we have to be real careful because it's easy for us to point out everybody else's sin. No, I mean going against what we read. Oh, yeah. Oh, this, uh, you've heard this before. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. They're the same. Approved. Yep. Would I rather be called a Christian? No. Holding a Christ follower. Mm-hmm. There you go. I like it. 
I like it. Folks, let me tell you one more thing. We got a God of mercy and a God of second chances. And the Bible actually says, he says to the nation of Israel, which has been very disobedient, that in the latter days, he'll repay them for the years the locusts have eaten. He'll do the same for you and me. Have you wasted time, maybe? Possibly. Have you squandered some opportunities? If you're like me, probably. But if you humble yourself and say, Lord, let's get going from here. Show me what you would have me do. Put me to work. Take your eyes off of everybody else and find out what it is he's wired you to do and just go do that. And have fun and watch how God will bless it in the time we have left. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.